are here. At 11FS headquarters in London, we work for episode 36 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you, the SEC is coming, the SEC arrived, and so did FinCEN, and Wyoming, and everybody else. And then next story, we of course cover French Canadians raise questions about Bitcoin mining, and banks are now moving bonds on DLT, whatever that is. Alrighty, once again, I am joined in the room by GSAS himself, Colin G. Platt. I think you've picked up a bit of a voice problem. Maybe your rhododendron was uh, bothering your voice before you left. Well, I think I lost all my powers not being next to the field. <laughs> that was the source of all your powers all along. You just, you are fieldless. You are no longer near a field communicating. You are in London communicating with a strong T by the looks of it to try and get through this. So, and a whole lot of honey. Yeah, yeah. If you want to mock Colin, he's at Colin G. Platt on Twitter. Um, Hashtag where did Colin's voice go? Uh, <laughs> still next to the field. <laughs> it's, it's still not immutable. Um, all right, let's uh, let's get on to the stories this week because it's been a big one for um, the empire striking back in regulation. The first story comes from Investopedia. And uh, Investopedia say Coinbase has been hit with two class action lawsuits. They've been accused of insider trading of Bitcoin Cash, which, of course, was the fork of Bitcoin uh, that went on to create another version of the currency. So, Colin, do you want to give the details of this one? Uh, I'll give it a go. <laughs> Hashtag, where's your voice gone? Hashtag, where's my voice? Um, so at the end of the day, what happened here is... Um, Coinbase had listed Bitcoin Cash, um, hadn't really communicated anything on it, all of a sudden put something out. Um, lots of people got upset because they were buying Bitcoin Cash at a much higher price. And there were lots of rumors uh, surrounding employees potentially having a few weeks, a few months um, time to go in and buy Bitcoin Cash outside of Coinbase to profit from it being listed at Coinbase. So they could artificially inflate the price. That's what they're accusing them of. And so uh, in addition to that, accusation, Coinbase has recently notified users that the Inland Revenue Service, or the IRS, has ordered it to turn over data on 13,000 customers. Um, taxes on your Bitcoin gains, uh, it seems like a technology that was initially intended to sort of exist without the middleman has been attacked by the middleman quite uh, quite harsh. Um, you once famously said that you've seen nothing in the past six months in the crypto market that hasn't represented a pump and dump. Is is that uh, <laughs> is that coming home to roost? Uh, I'd say nine months now. <laughs> it's a long time to go. All right, um, but you know, speak whilst we're on the subject of Coinbase, um, in the Financial Times, they plan to start a cryptocurrency. Fund. Um, so the Coinbase Index Fund um, belongs to a new Coinbase subsidiary called Coinbase Asset Management. Will only serve accredited investors, which is interesting, um, and people who have annual salaries above two hundred thousand dollars or a net worth of at least a million dollars, excluding housing. Um, the first version of this fund, for regulatory reasons, will be limited to U.S. accredited investors. But as we build more funds, we can make them available. Um, it will only hold coins listed on GDAX. So that's it's going to hold four coins it's going to be bitcoin bitcoin cash litecoin and ethereum and you get to hold those four coins for a two percent annual fee yeah i mean it's cool like this is the thing we've been talking about it's not just a payment system and in fact people are buying these things as investments they launched an investment fund um it's legitimate but like other than registering as a coinbase customer and holding those funds myself and paying that one-off 1.5 percent fee like what does holding the two percent 
what does paying the 2% annual fee get me that doing that wouldn't get me? I guess it's a regulated fund. It's now a regulated fund. Potentially the taxation treatment is better in the US. I'm not a lawyer, a tax lawyer at all. Um, but rather than mean taxed as property, it would be taxed as normal capital gains. There you go. So maybe um, maybe there's some demand for that out there after all, because um, there's definitely some people reacting to this one in different directions at the moment. Uh, and staying uh, with the idea of funds, um, there's a story from TechCrunch. And of course, uh, the former TechCrunch founder, his crypto fund, uh, Arrington XRP Capital, has been one of the funds that got a subpoena from the SEC. So in case you've been living in a bubble, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S. have started subpoenaing, I think it was 85 companies? Uh, about that, yeah. And so Michael Arrington, who was the TechCrunch founder, said he received a subpoena and every fund he's talked to has received one. He went on to say, that's fine, they just have to figure out what they want. They need to set up rules so we can all follow them, and the market is begging them for that. Interesting times. Very interesting, very scary. He put out some tweets that he later deleted um, saying that he was really worried about this because it's not just going after the ICOs, it's actually coming after the investors, which if you've invested in ICO may trickle down to you eventually. I, I just wonder how they're affording to fund all of these investigations, right? Has the SEC done an ICO? Like, how much resource do you need to go after every crypto fund and every potential uh, investor? Like, that's going to take forever. Yeah, but if they get it back, right, they get to keep money. Well, that's true. Yeah, they get to, maybe they just see, see an ability to fund it. But this is in the same week that FinCEN said that some, um, some tokens are uh, kind of money. Uh, this is comes after for quite some time the cftc has been saying bitcoin looks like a commodity so crypto assets can be regulated by the cftc as a commodity uh, they can be regulated by the sec as a security they can be regulated by fincen as money they are probably the most regulated crypto asset in history and yet they're still no less risky it strikes me that trying to fit things in existing buckets hasn't really worked. And I, this is more of a show of force than it is uh, kind of really solving the actual problem. Yes. And I think it, it, it's worth saying that Bitcoin can be looked at as different things depending on how you use it and who's asking. Well, so that's the point. None of those things are wrong. right? None of those regulators are actually wrong. They're just not also 100% right. Exactly. But... What I really want to hit on in that is the FinCEN, the Treasury, came came out and specifically highlighted ICOs, yeah. centralized tokens, as being um, money transmission services, which means they need to go through a whole another set of regulations. So this isn't even SEC security problems. Yeah. This is... A whole new can of worms that I don't think most people are expecting. And I think it, that's largely because FinCEN are the ones that look after many of the rules around KYC AML. In other words, know your customer. So this was fitting it into an existing box that they had. We need to get, uh, we need to know who's investing in these ICOs because we potentially, as as a government or a regulator, are very concerned that people could invest in an ICO and wash the proceeds of crime or or even um, you know, breach sanctions. Uh, so a, a state. Um, that uh, that may be you know, politically dangerous to a, a you know, population like um, Europe or the US or, or even uh, to much of much of Asia could potentially do an ICO or could invest in an ICO, flip it on an exchange or sell it on the secondary market, and lo and behold, they've got they managed to launder the proceeds of crime wherever they need to. Exactly, and I think the other thing that I want to highlight on this is this isn't just kind of like um, a bunch of really stupid state laws. Like there are. Um, heavy implications, including going to jail, the stuff set out in the Patriot Act, it's quite scary. 
Mm. Yeah, no, there are real consequences for not following these rules. Um, the question now is which rules do you follow uh, and when do you follow them? And I think uh, this is uh, great. The, the people have come out and said, here are the rules. There's some more regulatory certainty here. But if you can manage to pull off an ICO through this web of regulation now, um, then then you've done really, really well. And actually, I think ICOs are probably going to go away. You've said a few times ICOs are dead. But this idea of global capital formation remains interesting. The, the idea is interesting. The form is not the greatest time to be doing it, perhaps never will be. No. Um, I just hope there aren't, um, the, the law of unintended consequences says that maybe somebody operating with a token, maybe a central bank issuing a token in another country, maybe um, a commercial bank looking to use something like a token that isn't um, issued by an algorithm, but is actually issued as commercial paper or is issued, you know, as uh, held against deposits um, at a central bank. Would they be implicated in some of this stuff? Like, I think it's, it's hard to say that they're not. So there is potential consequences on what regulators call DLT, distributed ledger, not blockchain stuff, of all the things they're doing for the blockchain, not distributed ledger stuff at the moment, if that makes sense. And I think um, for all these central bank things, it's worth noting that a lot of what they do now is already regulated activity. They know how to do it. If they put it out in the same way they put out cash or treasuries or anything like that, it's fine to do it. Yeah, they just have to follow the, the rules, laws, depending on where they're set up. So I, I suspect what we're going to see is a lot of jurisdictions following the, the Japanese model um, and with a bit of the FINMA guidance where actually this stuff probably needs its own um, own set of like uh, black ink uh, legislation, not regulation, uh, because this stuff is, is that complicated. It has upside and it has potential and it could be really, really powerful, but it, it doesn't fit neatly into existing boxes and we probably need to go back and think about it a little bit more before we start trying to put it into existing boxes quite as hard as this. But I do recognize the need to limit the risk in this space without question. So. Mm. All right. So moving on, um, story in Bloomberg um, about uh, Quebec, uh, so some French Canadians, uh, which is about as Colin as it gets, really, isn't it? It's uh, I know you're Seattle, but that's kind of like South Canada, right? Um, Quebec throws cold water on Bitcoin miners seeking cheap power. So there was some stories a few weeks ago about uh, everybody was going to all the miners were going to leave China and go to Quebec. Not going to happen. Well, I, I think it still is, but what, what happened is essentially the, the premier who is the um, top dog in, in uh, the province of Quebec has come out and said, look, if all you're going to do is come here and mine Bitcoin and use our free electricity or cheap electricity, that's not really adding any value. If you're coming and you're creating value for our economy, you're welcome to come here. And this is on the back of Hydro-Quebec, which is somewhat tied to the government uh, as a utility saying, yes, please come in. We want all of you to use up this power. What I found, I heard an event last night, which was really interesting, is in order to set up in Quebec, they're not setting up um, just in a city or, or something like that. They're going on to the First Nations or the, the native reserves, and they have to have some kind of deal with um, the local First Nations in order to set up. And that's how they get this really, really cheap power. Very interesting. Um, so it, it's going to be an interesting one to watch because uh, certainly renewables as powering Bitcoin takes away the one sort of uh, the second executive argument. The first one I hear is it's on money laundering and terrorism, which factually appears to be incorrect. And the second one is uh, it wastes energy and um, arguably it uses a lot of energy without question. But if it can be flipped to renewables, then hopefully it could become something sustainable and interesting. Um, 
Next story coming from The Independent, which is a newspaper in the UK. This is a very UK-specific story, but um, the headline was Cryptocurrency Exchanges to Face Regulatory Clampdown, says Mark Carney. Um, so he promised to clamp down on the use of cryptocurrency exchanges for um, money laundering and terrorist financing. Um, he also said that the time has come to call the crypto asset ecosystem to the same standards as the rest of the financial system. Um, and in his view, holding those exchanges to the same standards would address a major uh, underlap, which is an interesting word, in the regulatory approach. I actually read all of this speech, and um, I found uh, a lot to be excited about in the speech. Um, He called out all of the risks, as you would imagine, but he also said, um, looking to the future, um, he, he said, well, before I get to that, actually, He said a bunch of interesting things. The first thing is he uses the term crypto asset. I hadn't seen a major government or regulator use the term crypto asset before they talked about cryptocurrencies. So crypto asset suggests he recognizes it's much broader than currencies. He did reiterate his statement that if you were to test Bitcoin as money, it fails. But actually, if you were to view it as an interesting crypto asset, it is very interesting. He also said that it speaks to the idea that people want uh, peer-to-peer access to money. They want to be able to transact directly and the existing financial system isn't dealing with that um you know he, how do how does these technologies and other technologies adjust to meet society's changing preferences um can they um, transform uh, the efficiency reliability and flexibility of not just payments but financial markets and should central banks provide central bank digital currency accessible to all which we've seen that um, japan is actually looking to do through jcoin to me, this is actually um, a really, really interesting paper from the Bank of England. Um, the underlying um, crypto assets can increase the efficiency of managing data, improve resilience by managing central points of failure, enhance transparency and auditability through the creation of instant, permanent, and mutable records of transactions, and expand the use of straight-through processes um, and on the receipt of information. Now, they, he, he's saying can, could, might, but actually... It's not what the headlines say. There's a lot more going on here, and I'd encourage everybody to read this paper. Two reflections on this. First is, I think the statement that he makes in there about holding crypto assets to the same standard is, is a bit rich because, yeah, what, right. six six months ago, these things were considered Tamagotchis, right? Mm-hmm. And now he's saying, right, we need to treat them the same way we treat stocks. They're insanely risky. Um, in my opinion, we should treat them very similar to um, betting, which is governed, at least in this country, under different regulations. And at some point, maybe they will need to be held to the same. But a lot of this stuff, people just didn't have clarity. And the second thing I'd say is it's great to see Mark Kearney coming out and talking about these and saying exchanges need clampdowns or whatever whatever they quoted it as. But bear in mind, the Bank of England does not regulate exchanges. The FCA does. That's very true. Um, it's a jurisdictional question, but there's, I think uh, there's something lost in the text versus how he said the words when you listen to him. So w- what he was really saying is um, recognizing that money laundering is the issue for governments and regulators. How do we expect this industry to manage mon- the money laundering risk? We expect it to look a little bit like KYC AML, so let's try and make that happen. I think that's the big one. Uh, he also really comes out to um, 
talk to you know some of the language questions that are out there some he says that from a monetary policy standpoint the bleed from crypto assets into the major economy is, is somewhat limited um and that uh you know fish, efficient fair and transparent markets we could really really learn from what's going on in crypto assets so i, I think that's interesting mm. um and, and I, I guess it's a reaction to the fact that um, the the major uh, the major markets, uh, the mainstreams of uh, of consumers in the UK and around the world had started to buy crypto assets. So they he had to react with a paper. I'm pleased it's this thoughtful. I'm displeased in the major press reaction to how thoughtful this paper is. Um, and uh, I hope people go read this paper. Um, all right, next story. Um, speaking of people that maybe aren't very thoughtful, or maybe on the picture do look thoughtful, quite possibly confused, Diane Abbott. Um, who? Uh, Diane Abbott, lol. Um, is a politician in the United Kingdom for the opposition party, uh, the Labour Party, uh, who has been on television and famously stumbled over her words, forgotten numbers, said billion when she meant million, said thousand when she meant billion, um, and just used the wrong numbers entirely. Uh, and the Business Insider uh, website who report this have put a picture up of her looking very, very confused, t- to her credit, possibly dazzled by sunshine. Um, she does look like she's squinting while looking at the sun, doesn't she? Uh, so... This, this is a fantastic story because she thinks Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme and Labour will regulate it. One of the problems with Bitcoin is to the extent at which it's just a gigantic Ponzi scheme. If everyone took their money, their Bitcoin money and tried to buy a new car at once, the whole thing would collapse. Isn't that what they're trying to do right now in this country and pull all the coins out of all your trading partners? <laughs> <laughs> if anything, the UK is a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we're a Ponzi scheme with like a Tower of London. It's pretty here. Uh, so the Ponzi schemes don't have towers, my friend. Uh, oh, let's just move on from Diane Abbott. That was, uh, if you're in the US, uh, sorry to go through such a UK centric part. Or anywhere else. Or anywhere else, yeah. Especially our friends in Switzerland. Well, yeah, no, but like the US, I felt like I need to apologize to them because they're the ones that will get offended. The Swiss are just good with it. <laughs> now I am, my tongue is firmly in my cheek. Um, all right, so Coindesk have a story where US regional banks begin to cite crypto as business risk. Also, JP Morgan and Bank of America did, I believe. Yep. Hmm. Banks and other financial institutions may have products and services such as new payment system technologies and cryptocurrency, which may cause current and potential customers to choose those institutions. I don't understand that statement. I don't understand the whole statement, but at the end of the day, this is what we've been talking about, right? Most of these banks are, especially the smaller banks, make money out of lending money. Um, They're not going to lose anything from payments. Uh, Bitcoin does not lend money. It's a payment system, kind of, um, a very inefficient one. There's other things out there. What they're highlighting is, I think, more than anything, if Bitcoin and these other things take off, that's going to make them invest a lot more in doing uh, KYC AML on Bitcoin transactions. Great. Good. Like, it's going to cost you to help the space out. Well, get on with it. Like, stop complaining about a risk and stop trying to dress up your um, your PL objective to ignore this space and your laziness as a risk. 
I think the risk is your own laziness. In fact, if banks were getting their arms around this space, they are best placed uh, to adopt some of the technologies in cryptocurrencies from the likes of Scorechain and Chainalysis and Elliptic and others who can really help um, prevent money laundering, terrorist financing and sanctions breaches in the crypto asset space, but would make a massive difference in the world of financial services where, where the overwhelming majority of money laundering and terrorist financing and cybersecurity risk is today. So um, I think lobbying by calling things a risk is, um, is Bush League. I, I think it is fair, though, that they're highlighting, at least in their annual reports to their investors, that there are things on the horizon. And yeah. I agree with you. Um, and I think that there's a big disconnect between the people that are sitting writing these reports in compliance at low to medium levels completely, and the CEO that's actually driving it. I would even be surprised if the CEO of a place like West Bank or whatever this is knew, knew what any of this stuff was. He probably found out when somebody asked about it. No, I completely agree with that. Look, the disconnect between um, various uh, technical compliance departments in a large organization and its uh, decision makers is, you know, it's, it's often five to six layers of management. Mm-hmm. It, and it, it's not easy to do this stuff. I've been in a big bank and I've worked with a lot of very, very thoughtful, considered compliance professionals. Um, but uh, I think it, it's careful. You have to be careful to manage these external statements a little bit. And uh, this is why empowering uh, knowledge centers inside an organization such as that and, and being able to really rely on them. Um, we've, we started to see that emerging, I think, in a number, um, number of the larger banks. But um, it's no surprise we haven't seen it in the smaller ones. What I'm surprised by is, is a bank as thoughtful as maybe JP Morgan who's doing as much in the DLT space would call this out as a risk. But hey, at the same time, uh, there's uh, I, I guess you can't control everything, right? No, and remember one thing about JP Morgan is it, it has a lot of tentacles around the world and they should, in theory, be able to see a lot of financial transactions. JP Morgan has a lot of tentacles. I just, in my head, I saw an image of an octopus version of Jamie Dimon, like touching lots of parts of the world, like sitting over a globe. Um, that That's a gift that needs to happen. Uh, all right, next story on Coindesk. Um, Bitcoin's kimchi premium has all but evaporated. What's the kimchi premium, Colin? Um, so this was referring to earlier in the year when the prices in South Korean exchanges for Bitcoin were significantly higher than all of the other ones. We covered the story that um, CoinMarketCap, which is a website that tracks Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency prices, actually removed um, Korea from its its averages. They've since put them back in. Um, But that spread has collapsed. And a lot of that has been um, written up to... uh, less investors trying to move into this as quickly as they can uh, be some of that driven by regulation as well as some of maybe the on-ramps being um, more efficient now which is kind of collapse the spread because people go buy Bitcoin in the US or Europe, sell it in, in South Korea, pocket the difference. And I think this has happened after the South Koreans brought in some sensible rules about um, KYC AML and also exchanges sharing information in terms of, uh, you know, with, with uh, financial services and law enforcement. So some of the reg arbitrage has gone down, but the volume in Korea is still pretty reasonable, right? It's not like the volume in Korea has disappeared. It's just that that, that ability to arbitrage it is kind of gone. Yeah. And and maybe some of that was driven by the anonymous accounts that may or may not have been um, looking to pay taxes or l- wanting anybody to know what they're doing, so they're happy to pay a premium on Bitcoin. Yeah, it makes sense. All right, um, next story has possibly the longest and most difficult headline to read I've ever had. So it's a press release, come on. Yeah, um, just just a note to press release writers, help us out here. Um 
So I'm going to try with this one. Go with me, guys. Credit Suisse and ING execute first live transaction using HQLAX Securities lending app on R3's Corda blockchain platform. <gasps> All right, this one's actually really cool, Colin. Let's let's get into it. What's really going on here? So what they did in short is these two banks moved bonds issued by the Dutch government and the German government legally between one entity and the other. So the, the Dutch government and the German government issued debt, a.k.a. bonds, and those uh, those bonds were issued directly across the, uh, using Corda as a platform, but with HQLA as the app. So they were they were issued in the normal sense. Okay, so they were issued as paper. As, as numbers. Yeah. Inside of a CSD. Right. They're what's called a dematerialized security. So everything's digital, but it sits inside uh, a central database. Yes. What happened is everything was owned in, um, in a custodian account held at Credit Suisse, and it was moved legally between Credit Suisse and ING uh, using Corda. Right. Okay. So it was the actual movement between Credit Suisse and ING that was used Corda as the platform. But actually, there was an app on top on top of Corda, which I think is something people don't realize is that there is an app ecosystem emerging there um, that that people can use. Yeah. And I think this is what what's really interesting about this is. It's not about how do we shave a little bit of cost out, which we've been talking about a lot. This is the next step, which is when banks move money, they need to put up collateral. Um, and this allows them to reduce the amount of collateral they need to potentially put up because you can move the ownership of bonds quite quickly. And this is actually collateral. These are very high-quality bonds, high-quality debt from high-quality issuers. So that um, potentially makes banks more capital efficient, which given the importance on uh, kind of being well-capitalized lately, the more capital efficient they are, potentially the more profitable they are. This goes right to the CEO. If you get behind this, you could potentially be more capital efficient and your tier 1 CET ratio potentially improves. And you can potentially lend more money out into the, the public sector, which should help the economy. All right, so that's um, a hugely exciting piece and actually probably one that most people miss. So, Colin, thanks for talking me through that one because I didn't understand it. Um, speaking of R3, of course, as everybody knows, today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Corda is an open-source blockchain platform uh, that allows businesses to transact directly with Colin's beard in strict privacy using smart contracts. Corda enables complex transactions using real rhododendrons and assets uh, and legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted bush or intermediate. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 uh, with over 160 of the world's largest fields and banks. Uh, it's ready to build on today. <laughs> the financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. You can transform your garden or your business ecosystem with a platform selected by the world's largest institutions to build their future on. Corda, go to corda.net to learn more. <laughs> you glad I got through that one? <laughs> Just barely. <laughs> Just managed it. It didn't break me like orcas did. Uh, all right. Uh, stories we didn't have time to cover. None of them are about orcas, by the way. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, story from Eth News, which is Republic of Marshall Islands prepares for sovereign cryptocurrency. Good for them. Um, Coindesk, Japan's crypto exchanges self-regulate in the wake of a $500 million hack. Japan is showing the way once again. This is interesting. We had a great interview a few shows ago about exactly this thing. With the CEO of Bitfury. Um, check that out. 
um, definitely do. Um, there's a story on Forbes about how blockchain can really impact real estate investing. Um, real estate, of course, being one of those big alternative asset classes in the asset management world that, as you said, hasn't been dematerialized. Um, so has a real potential to be uh, kind of a lot more efficient um, and, and make a lot of money for, for, for the financial services sector or people that want to innovate and build new companies. So uh, it's worth a read, but this one was very high level, I thought, and a bit of an intro. Um, and then we didn't have time to cover um, a story from The Independent. 600 Bitcoin mining computers were stolen in Iceland. So um, you know, watch out for thieves in Iceland. Uh, <laughs> watch out for volcanoes as well. Uh, all right, tweet them. <laughs> <laughs> They'll burn you. Uh, tweet of the week. Um, so it comes from uh, Chris Giancarlo from the CFTC. Shout out, Chris. Um, is crypto or is hashtag crypto or hashtag FOMO your hashtag Friday feeling? Hashtag DYOR at CFTC.gov forward slash Bitcoin forward slash index. Hashtag crypto dad. Crypto dad kind of says it all, right? It does. I, I don't know if this was necessarily the, the best tweet for him to be putting out because he's supposed to be impartial. I, I personally find it quite funny, though. I, I feel like this is um, the regulator using Snapchat to try and tell you how not to lose money. Like, I get it. Communicate in the right way. It's it's it's, it's a tad tone deaf. It's just a little tone deaf. But it is... I kind of like it though, you know, it's like, I want to hug him. You can see he's really trying. And like, this is, I think there is a serious purpose behind this, which is like, if you are um, investing in the space and you don't understand what the rules are and you don't understand what the risks are, here's a link of, here's a bit of information for you to go get informed. That's super helpful. That's a great thing for a regulator to be doing. I understand using Twitter to do it when you've suddenly got yourself a massive Twitter following of, of um, people who are interested in crypto. He's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to communicate with them. But it just comes across like your granddad using Snapchat. I mean, I'm 33 and I don't understand Snapchat. I'm, I'm just waiting for him to update his picture on Twitter. So he's got one of those like astronaut suits on with his head. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Or just anything involving some sort of uh, unicorn T-shirt with uh, that's, that's like that, uh, that whole punk thing. The unicorn cool. punk. <laughs> or the you know pink unicorn outfit as well just go all the way um, unicorn all the way um, don't forget you can let us know what you think about any of the stories we've covered at Chain Insider on Twitter that's Chain Insider or you can get in touch with me at S.Y. Taylor or you can get in touch with Colin Platt and his beard at Colin G. Platt if you want to pick up on his voice hashtag where's Colin's voice gone um, otherwise you can drop in as an email podcasts at 11fs.com um, we wanted to let you know that um, Colin and I took over episode 9 of our sister podcast InsureTech Insider for a one-off blockchain and insurance mashup you can check that out on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast client if like me you're not an Apple guy uh, just search InsureTech Insider uh, next up, Colin spoke to the Consensus and uh, Ethereum founder, Joe Lubin, back when Colin had a voice. Is that where your voice went? Probably. Uh, over to Colin and Joe. I'm here with Joseph Lubin, founder of Consensus and also co-founder of, of Ethereum. Thanks for coming on, Joe. Thanks for having me. So for our listeners who haven't heard about Consensus or maybe haven't heard about Ethereum, believe it or not, there still are some. Can you tell us a bit about um, who you are? why you got into this and exactly what uh, both consensus and Ethereum are? Um, so I have a background in tech and finance, uh, did lots of uh, software engineering in robotics, uh, machine vision, AI, and uh, more conventional projects. Uh, did some work in the financial industry and that uh, set me up for 
becoming aware of the Bitcoin space pretty early on. Uh, there wasn't anything I wanted to do in that space other than uh, learn about it to, and uh, develop some expertise, uh, but wasn't really interested in starting a business early on in the space. Uh, but when I uh, read uh, Vitalik Buterin's white paper describing the Ethereum platform, all of the potential that I felt was inherent in the Bitcoin white paper and, and uh, in that technology uh, was crystallized in, in uh, what I considered a human scalable form. Uh, so essentially uh, in around 2012, there are lots of different groups that were interested in going beyond just that single money application of Bitcoin uh, and building many other kinds of applications on the blockchain technology, the, a new uh, trustworthy uh, shareable infrastructure. Uh, but it was all being done effectively, requiring protocol priests to uh, build each new use case one at a time. Uh, and so uh, Vitalik's vision, um, which has been supported by uh, developer tools that our company Consensus has built and, and other developer tools in the space, uh, involved a clean separation of the protocol layer from the application layer, uh, enabling protocol priests to continue about their business, improving the platform, uh, but also enabling average software developers, of which there are many millions around the world, uh, to recognize patterns uh, of how to develop uh, applications, because they're very similar, uh, similar developing decentralized applications as it is developing uh, normal applications. Uh, and so that, uh, that effectively created a platform for decentralized applications that could be uh, very widely usable. And it uh, has proven the case that uh, uh, the Ethereum uh, developer ecosystem, um, uh, both the, the, pub <laughs> the public network uh, as well as uh, um, private uh, permissioned implementations uh, within corporations, within governments and consortia, etc., um, is by far the largest uh, developer community in, in the blockchain ecosystem, especially at the application layer. I think there's some really interesting things in there that I want to dig into. Um, I mean, this, this notion where Ethereum has taken extremely complex, um, as, you, as you said, protocol priest level uh, programming at the very low level in things like Bitcoin or in several of the other competing um, cryptocurrency implementations uh, at a very high level and made that front facing thing available to people who just want to build the end product or some sort of made up product. But the, the other part is generalizing that outside of just the cryptocurrency applications, you said permissioned blockchains and these types of things and really making it um, usable in a whole variety of use cases. Is that what you think is um, kind of brought about all this excitement that we've seen in the last six to 12 months in blockchain? Or do you think there's something else more to it? Well, there are lots of reasons for the excitement. Uh, certainly the ability for uh, startups, uh, for individuals, for uh, organizations to use this new technology, um, for existing organizations who uh, compete with uh, other organizations but also want to collaborate with them, whether they're in their sector or whether it's across sectors or across industries along value chains, um, the ability to uh 
fluidly interoperate, uh, much less expensively, much more quickly, uh, is uh, extremely exciting to, to lots of those businesses. Being able to build a decentralized application and offer new ways of offering services, new ways of interacting with people on a platform is exciting to new companies. It's exciting to developers. The mechanism to launch a business, uh, whether it's through a tokenized security uh, that you're potentially selling or through a utility token that offers consumers access to your platform, membership on your platform, access to scarce resources that your platform delivers. Uh, That's a new way of uh, uh, essentially um, building a company based on a protocol uh, and going to market much faster with a bunch of stakeholders that are involved earlier. Uh, So there are quite a a large number of uh, uh, different vectors uh, for adoption, and and, uh, uh, many of these drive the excitement. So really interesting points. You brought up a point I loved, which is about launching businesses with this technology. You've done that. You launched Consensus. Can you tell us a bit about what Consensus and why Consensus? Um, So at the end of about a year on the Ethereum project, it was clear that we were going to release version one of Ethereum pretty soon. And uh, there weren't a ton of different groups around the world uh, who were building at the application layer. So I just started to gather some people to do that. Uh, Consensus was intended to just continue the vision of the Ethereum project, but uh, uh, do a bunch of things that the Swiss Foundation couldn't really do. Um, And so we started uh, uh, building some applications. We intended to be a venture production studio where we would uh, build some MVPs and wrap companies around them and put them out for external investment. And we soon realized that building decentralized applications wasn't that easy. So we started building infrastructure. We started building uh, Truffle, which evolved to the Truffle suite to enable developers to more easily build decentralized applications. We uh, built uh, MetaMask because uh, up to that point, if you're a developer, you had to download a a client to your laptop and and be a node on the Ethereum network. if you wanted your customers to use your application, uh, they could run it through their web browser and, and they would also have to have to ask your customers to uh, uh, download a node to their laptop and sync it up. And uh, that was uh, ultimately going to be a non-starter, uh, except for some of those early adopters. So uh, MetaMask uh, enabled developers and and users uh, to, through their browser, run applications and, and effectively be connected to uh, public Ethereum. Um, Infura uh, uh, arose because uh, we're starting to get uh, a bunch of transactions and other kinds of requests in the Ethereum ecosystem, and and um, lots of them were getting dropped on the floor, and we need load balancing and all sorts of sophisticated things that go on in uh, in the legacy IT world. Um, and Infura has proved to be absolutely essential for scaling these uh, early days of, of the Ethereum ecosystem. So currently, uh, it handles about 6 billion requests per day on average from the Ethereum ecosystem. I think it's peaked at around 9 billion. Um, it is 
um, moving towards decentralizing itself. Uh, so we're very cognizant of, of the fact that uh, we do want to maintain as much decentralization as possible. But uh, those uh, early elements um, began to form our infrastructure group. So our infrastructure group is one of five major thrusts of activity. Uh, we uh, build lots of non-infrastructure projects. These are core software components like self-sovereign identity and reputation and bounties systems and decentralized governance and accounting tools. Uh, we use those and third parties use those in building uh, more complex applications, um, things that we consider to be open platforms. So these are protocol-based open platforms on which different actors can uh, participate in different roles to emerge a set of services. So similar to the way a company would offer services in often a somewhat adversarial relationship with their customer. Uh, these open platforms uh, in the music industry, in supply chain, in legal industry, in software support, um, uh, in different kinds of gaming, in content creation, they can all create a platform which there are, on which there are um, either no intermediaries uh, like uh, Facebook or right-sized intermediaries uh, where none of the actors on that platform are overly controlling of the platform or overly monetizing. Another prong of activity is our consulting group. Uh, so it's called Consensus Solutions. It uh, builds uh, blockchain things and offers advisory services for governments, uh, for enterprises, for consortia. Uh, so we've done uh, significant work in energy and supply chain, uh, in um, banking, insurance, healthcare, a um, handful of others, education. Uh, and on the government side, we've uh, taken our identity solution, Uport, and that's being used in a couple places. One that's public is uh, in Zug in Switzerland, where it's enabling citizens to access government services and soon vote in plebiscites. Uh, it is, or um, we built, we worked with the Monetary Authority in Singapore to build a real time gross settlement system. We've done a lot of work in Dubai um, uh, with Smart Dubai Smart City Project and done land registry um, in there and in a handful of places coming up. Um, another prong of activity is education. So we've, edu or we've graduated 120 uh, blockchain software engineers from Consensus Academy. Also run a continuing legal education course um, that uh, American lawyers can take uh, to get some continuing uh, ed credits. Uh, also run um, a contest slash uh, educational event for MBAs uh, from some of the top MBAs. I think 38 teams participated in that. Uh, final prong of activity is Consensus Capital, where we have a custody 2.0 project enabling us and soon institutions to uh, custody their tokens uh, in a um, highly secure way. Um, got a venture arm that is looking at lots of projects uh, in our space in, in spaces adjacent to our space for external investment. Uh, Kevin Gupta joined us from Eric Schmidt's foundation to drive that. Um, and uh, Token Foundry Services is uh, a comprehensive token launch group uh, within Consensus. It's a group in the sense that it has access to our, our deep legal team uh, that 
uh, can structure token launches that are um, tokenized securities or utility tokens that wouldn't be considered securities by securities bodies around the world. Um, it coordinates uh, security audits uh, from our consensus diligence team, coordinates uh, marketing activities, um, design and execution of the token itself, design and execution of the token launch, etc. And and I don't want to focus too much on that last part, but I, I think it is really interesting because we've talked on the show a lot about ICOs, maybe not done always um, to the letter of the law, maybe not done the best way. But uh, what's really interesting in what you brought up is you guys are actually trying to make that available to people to do it the right way. And you said something I really loved, which was securities tokens. So you've you've acknowledged, which I, I guess the lawyers have um, uh, told people, a lot of these things will be considered securities and sometimes that's okay. Um, if somebody's looking at setting up an ICO or getting involved with an ICO, um, what's a good way to kind of get involved and find out more about that? And I know you have another project on tokens as well. Yeah, so our token foundries team um, can shepherd uh, any interested parties through that process. Um, there are clear definitions of what a tokenized security is as opposed to a utility token. Uh, we have come up with the notion of a technically accredited investor. Um, uh, essentially, if, uh, if a utility token um, provides member services or uh, access to some sort of consumer service, access to some sort of scarce resource, um, it can very clearly uh, be uh, sold as a utility token, not a security. Um, but you have to make sure that you're doing everything correctly. Uh, and uh, we um, are doing our best to discourage uh, speculation around those kinds of tokens, uh, make sure that they're uh, seen as usage tokens and um we are putting together uh, an accredited investor checklist uh, and sort of like a quiz that people will have to do in order to uh, uh, demonstrate that they know what they're doing. Uh, so um, an interesting approach to all that. At the same time, we're building out uh, a pretty sophisticated infrastructure for uh, issuing tokenized securities because uh, um, we don't think the utility token space is going away. Uh, it's a very exciting space, but we do think um, that a lot of the securities industry uh, will migrate towards tokens because uh, if you can issue programmable shares, um, there um, are just some amazing things that uh, you could potentially do. Absolutely. And I, I think that's that's a really good topic that I, I want to come back to in a minute. But can we focus on, on infrastructure? Um, you were saying earlier, kind of when you started working on these things and started building, you had a lot of um, realizations that things weren't ready and you started taking it upon building them yourselves and you did this in a very open fashion and, and you said a really key line there which is um, the current adversarial relationship how do you see what you're doing this technology more holistically changing that and what does it look like in the future we do believe that top-down command and control is an excellent way to organize things uh, when communication is slow and efficient and decision-making is consequently uh, difficult. Uh, but we have uh, layers of instantaneous communication networks. We have a technology that enables uh, different actors, uh, up to 50% of whom can be malicious, to come to decisions uh, in Bitcoin every 10 minutes, in Ethereum every 15 seconds, and soon much 
much more quickly than that. Uh, and so uh, that's a new organizing principle along which we can uh, start to build systems. So um, building out decentralized applications, decentralized open platforms is something that we're heavily focused on. Uh, they will have decentralized governance mechanisms. They will have people um, and companies uh, on those platforms uh, from their self-sovereign identities. So your access point to that uh, as an individual or potentially a company will be uh, your U-port. Um, your U-port uh, uh, will, you know, in contrast to how the, uh, the internet, the web is currently organized, where you do access things from an aspect of your identity, uh, username, password, um, uh, you are pretty much spraying all aspects of your identity everywhere, and it's stored on corporate servers and monetized by corporations. So this is a, uh, I would argue that the internet is awesome, but broken in, in certain fundamental ways, and it's broken because identity is broken, and, and this is a new approach to identity where uh, people will establish their own blockchain-based identities, will be able to uh, upload encrypted aspects of our identity um, granularly and selectively disclose those in situations we designate, like on, on some of those open platforms. Um, and if we want to, uh, in the developed world, link those into legacy identity, identity providers, we can do that through attestation. So the government can attest to the fact that you're a citizen or can drive uh, and point an attestation to your U-Port identity. Um, somebody that you're in a commercial relationship can attest to to that fact, your banker can attest that you've got an account in good standing. Um, so that sort of better infrastructure um, is um, what we think is going to uh, increasingly become what we all know as the World Wide Web. So consumers, I don't think, will uh, really need to worry about using blockchain. Uh, software engineers will take care of all that. Uh, consumers will just continue to use the web. Um, but in different ways and uh, uh, probably be less exploited and probably have more um, control over their aspects of identity and more economic agency in their interactions. And those are some really exciting questions. And I, uh, one thing that, that I've always liked um, about the way that you guys have looked at it is that, that aspect of when blockchains start to work, we don't talk about them. We don't notice them. They're almost kind of that forgotten aspect, unless you're, of course, working on them. Um, one one entity that you brought up, which is government, they're very heavily involved in this, even if they do start to become adopted. Do you think it's something they're starting to accept either in the blockchain or the cryptocurrency world? Because I know they have talked about it a lot. Um, yeah, so certainly different governments around the world are, are um, at different levels of understanding, uh, have their own differing philosophical foundations, um, and are making different kinds of pronouncements about, about the technology. Uh, so there are uh, quite a few, and, and it uh, sort of maps along two different dimensions. One is cryptocurrency, uh, and another is everything else on blockchain, uh, including uh, utility tokens and tokenized securities. With respect to cryptocurrency, uh, there are a handful of countries that are uh, perfectly accepting of the existence of cryptocurrencies and even making positive statements that uh, they're going to treat it as a currency, um, that they're going to treat it as a, a commodity like gold, um, etc. So, you know, Japan, a bunch of the 
Baltics, uh, United States is uh, certainly not saying no to cryptocurrency at this point. Uh, really, the concerns uh, that are expressed are uh, terrorist financing, money laundering, etc. All the all those same old concerns that we've heard. And uh, um, at the gateways between the legacy financial world and the blockchain or crypto world, uh, there is already regulation being applied. And, and I think that's uh, where we're going to see it. And, and that seems perfectly reasonable. So if you have an account at one of those exchanges, then you're going to be KYC and AML will, will be applied. Beyond that, uh, it will probably be uh, difficult to police um, you know, different transactions um, on the blockchain. Um, but so, so let me retract that a little bit. Um, you're probably not going to see policing of every single transaction, um, but if there are situations where law enforcement wants to understand something, um, then uh, blockchains are a good place for law enforcement to go to understand that thing. So there are commercial entities, there are law enforcement agencies that have technologies that can enable them to uh, identify with some probability uh, who the different actors are uh, that are associated with a, a blockchain-based transaction. And so those kinds of tools can be applied. And so blockchains are really not good places to conduct or to pay for crimes or, or that sort of thing, um, because you can use these tools and you can basically uh, narrow down the, um, the set of potential actors to say a hundred or 50 or something like that, uh, that it could be. Uh, and then traditional police work can, um, can identify who might be doing some sort of illegal activity. So, uh, don't do your crimes on blockchains. Um, and, uh, and, uh, with respect to that other aspect, um, which is, uh, Securities world, uh, utility tokens. Um, there are lots of different regimes that are wrapping their head around the value of, uh, of doing securities uh, as tokens or or ut accepting utility tokens as as non securities. Uh, so we're having a lot of good conversations around the world uh, about that, and I think that's going to go very well. Um, there is uh, the issue of bad projects and fraud uh, associated with utility tokens and securities. Uh, and that's essentially an issue that's probably been around for hundreds or thousands of years where uh, bad actors try to take advantage of naive consumers uh, based on information asymmetries. Uh, that's exacerbated in our space because the context is global and there's a low barrier to entry uh, to uh, do one of these schemes. Uh, and we can, uh, in contrast to the legacy financial world where um, somebody can create a share for a bad project or a fraudulent project and in a bucket room somewhere, um, call a bunch of grannies and, and sell that uh, share. Um, and those are harder to find. Uh, those are much harder to police. Uh, whereas uh, because of the global context and because the low barrier to entry enables us to reach out and, and uh, grab information on any project that wants to sell their tokens, um, we can, I think, more effectively police our space in time. So I think we will be able to self-regulate because we're going to uh, set up uh, norms 
for projects so that if you're doing a token launch, you're going to have to disclose all the following kinds of information. We'll set up an Edgar-like database for, for that sort of information. If you're not in that uh, database, then you know you are effectively not uh, properly disclosing what you should disclose. Uh, we have another project that uh, will incentivize analysts to uh, take a look at uh, all the different projects out there and uh, publicly disclose uh, information, their analyses, basically. Uh, so we think if there's a logically centralized place uh, for all of that good information, um, the industry will be able to protect consumers better. Uh, I'm not saying the, the traditional industry doesn't do a great job of protecting consumers, but I think there'll be better tools uh, when we move it into this space. Yeah, and I think as... as it's always easy to, to go out and compare the traditional legacy uh, business and say they're doing good or bad. But I think if you just look at an absolute term in how we've done within an industry, there's lots of room to improve. And I think uh, the low barrier to interest is definitely a worry. Um, I think it's it probably a lot of people wouldn't argue with the fact that we're in a bubble. I don't know if you, you'd agree with that. Um, but not only are there projects out there that can get funding when they don't necessarily have the best intention, but they can get a lot of funding. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there was an, an initial craze where the numbers were, were just ridiculous. So I think that's going to subside a little bit. I, I think uh, I think it's really valuable uh, that we're democratizing access to capital for different kinds of projects. So if you've got a good project, you can advertise it around the world, um, structure it appropriately legally. Uh, and um, that's a great thing. You don't need to move to, uh, to Silicon Valley uh, anymore. Um, similarly, democratizing access to projects that you think are excellent uh, is a good thing. So if you care about a project and you want to put a few, uh, a few Ether or bucks worth of crypto tokens into it, uh, uh, you should be able to do that. And, and I think that that is um, an underappreciated point is just the, the wide reach of finance now, uh, thanks to these technologies that we start to understand because of the internet and our ability to access information. But this is to say, when Consensus or another company is out building new infrastructure or things that you look at and you go, well, that's a fantastic idea, but he's in New York and I'm in France or I'm in um, Mexico, I can't necessarily access that in a traditional market. Blockchains, Ethereum, allow us to do that type of thing in a way that we could never have dreamed of doing before. So what do you think is sexy right now? I mean, what what is the thing in blockchain that you, or cryptocurrencies or in Ethereum world itself that you go, that's that's where I want to spend my time for the next X amount of months, years, whatever it is? <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure I can answer that question because we are we're kind of focused on the whole ecosystem. Uh, and so many elements of that are, are really important. Uh, what we do see is that many uh, core elements are getting built, uh, tested, um, evolved. Uh, so we have this gold 2.0 that uh, that all the crypto tokens are are uh, becoming. Um, Bitcoin is uh, attractive for purchase uh, into certain kinds of portfolios. For that reason, we have. Uh, 
the ability to uh, issue a tokenized security or a utility token. Ethereum is largely uh, enabling that uh, because uh, of the different uh, token standards on Ethereum. Uh, we have asset-backed tokens that are happening. There, I think they're going to be big news in 2018. We have decentralized atomic swap um, protocols. We have bounty systems. We have identity. We have governance tools. We have accounting systems. Uh, all these elements are getting to the point where uh, they're becoming mature and usable uh, to compose into more sophisticated solutions. And so uh, it may seem a little slow for the first couple few years as all these different uh, components are being built and tested and, and matured. But uh, projects will come along that make use of all these different elements. And, and then we're going to see uh, uh, an explosion of very useful platforms that uh, that make use of the different functionalities. Um, if you put out, uh, let's say, a set of insurance contracts, maybe they're crowd, uh, you're, you're uh, crowdsourcing the capital. Um, because of the nature of the Ethereum platform, where essentially it's a single world computer, you're running all your programs in one execution space. If somebody um, brings a new arbitration platform or insurance platform, onto Ethereum, suddenly that's available to pretty much everybody. Uh, and so uh, the we will hit an exponential launch point where we've got enough of these really useful uh, components uh, so that people can be very creative in putting them together into exciting new solutions. And I think that the notion of, of the whole being greater than the sum of all parts is, is something that this is really uh, a catalyst for. Do you think there are any milestones out there that people watching the space, um, let's say at, at DevCon, that's always a good one in, in November, and, and just over six months out, are there any things out there that um, you would look at and you'd say, by DevCon this year in 2018, I'd like to see this happen in the ecosystem? Mm, I don't have specific preferences. Um, I, I do think that we're going to see um, a bunch of asset-backed tokens, as I indicated before. I also think that uh, 2018 is going to be uh, a, the year where it becomes really clear that we're building an internet of blockchain systems. Uh, so uh, first, uh, the decentralized World Wide Web uh, will be composed of um, a platform like Ethereum, um, probably a, an evolution of Ethereum, where you have trusted transactions, automated agreements, uh, sophisticated programs. Um, but it's more than that. It's decentralized storage protocols. It's decentralized bandwidth. It's decentralized heavy compute. It's new communication systems. Um, so I think that will be apparent, but uh, there will be uh, other platforms, other protocols, and we're going to be able to move tokens across these uh, protocols uh, even if they're the same protocol, but one's a private network and one's a public network. Uh, and we're going to be able to bi-directionally validate transactions across those things. So uh, I do think we're going to see a bunch of those where we're talking across different protocols. Um, I also think that we're going to see some interesting scalability advancements, especially um, on Ethereum using Initially, state channels, um, plasma, uh, some proof of stake uh, advancements, uh, early sharding advancements, and uh, different side chains. So we'll, we'll be seeing uh, some side chains linked into public Ethereum this year. 
And I think those are a lot of concepts that we're going to come back to on the show. Uh, things like state channels, that's that's Ethereum's kind of answer to uh, the Lightning Network, though much more advanced. Um, side chains are things where you're kind of pulling transactions out of the main um, network into kind of a, a, a side link network, I guess is a simple way to explain that, though it's much more involved in that. Um, Joe, thank you very much, um, for coming on the show today. Can you tell people where they can find more about you, about consensus, um, and more about Ethereum if they're not aware of that? Sure. Um, so we're at consensus.net. We have, uh, uh, very high quality, uh, newsletter, uh, that we put out on a weekly basis. Uh, um, just, uh, can keep you informed of, uh, in a decent amount of, of detail of, uh, many of the things that we're working on. Um, blog.ethereum.org uh, tends to have a bunch of uh, Vitalik's writings. He, he puts some of his stuff out in, in different ways. Um, I'm at Ethereum Joseph on Twitter. Great. Well, thank you very much. Great. Thank you very much. Alrighty, a big thank you to Colin and Joe. Great interview there. Um, good of Joe to make some time to speak to our, our little old podcast. Um, Colin, what have you got coming up in the next week? You're going to be a busy boy. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to get my voice back. But yeah, we've got lots of work going on, and I'm going out to Korea and what three weeks for this de-economy thing exciting times yeah um do do get in touch with us um at uh, bchain insider if you want to find us uh, 11fs.com if you want to learn more about us all that remains for me to do is to thank my co-host colin thank you um thank our amazing amazing production team here at 11fs so laura watkins thank you our, our producer uh, michael bailey our amazing amazing editor thank you for getting us out of so many jams um and uh, sorting us out with batteries when we when we really need it for the, for the podcast for the h6 zoom um and assistant producer petrit whose resurrection is complete whose facial expressions and mime artistry is is, is off the charts thank you petrit i i think you know the rate he was drinking last night he ended all <laughs> He's trying to Petrit was trying to end it all. And and really all he did succeeded with was ending your voice. Yeah. I wasn't got, even there. <laughs> um do get in touch if you want to learn more about eleven FS. We help you do stuff with blockchain projects or DLT projects and commercialize them, or if you just want to speaker for your next event. Uh, just not me. <laughs> just yeah. if you want a mime artist, you can have Colin. Uh <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Colin's miming right now. That's why you need to leave us a review. Uh, Spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to. Tell those people to listen. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.